So today is the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to say many words. And by God's grace, we're going to see what there is at the end of it all. Hopefully clarity and not confusion. This will absolutely not be a systematic study of understanding the Trinity, at which point you walk from here and go, ah, makes perfect sense now. No promises there. Because there's no way for us to get this, okay? Just on the outset. We do not, if you're sitting there right now and you go, that's okay, it's the Trinity, it's a mystery. You have to understand you have been given that by faith, not by logic or education. This defies our human logic. It is not something, and you'll, as we piece it all together, this is not something that we made up. It's something that had to be revealed because if we wanted to make up something, this is not what we would do. Okay, so I want to walk through, though, that I, by faith, I totally accept this. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the mystery of it. But I want us to walk through of, okay, but we keep throwing around the word Trinity. Where, where do we actually get that? Like, where did that concept come from? What do we do with it? What's a right way of thinking about it? What's an, a wrong way of thinking about it? And we are going to, I'm going to ask that you pray for me here in just a moment, even while I'm praying, because this is a big one. I've been asked, oh, you like to preach through the books of the Bible, like verse by verse. When are you going to do Revelation? Okay, I plan on doing that one like at the end of my ministry, um, whenever that is. Because I don't rightly understand Revelation as confidently as I want to. And I've listened to and read and walked alongside enough pastors who have so passionately and boldly said, well, this is what it means. Two years later go, you know, the Lord's shown me something new. Revelation is... I think a book that causes us to pause and marvel at the sovereignty of a God who is going to securely bring it all back home for us by bringing us home. And I have my understandings. I have my convictions as I read it in the end times. But really, I just, I'm okay with the mystery of Revelation also, with grasping what I can right now and leaving it to the Lord on others. So he knows that I have my convictions. He also knows that I have my preferences, which don't necessarily line up. Like, um, Lord, I, I kind of see it this way, but if you want to do it this way, if they're right, I'm totally okay with that one too. Like, that's kind of where I rest in it all because he's sovereign, he's good. We can have cups of coffee, we can have dinner, and I can say, well, here's how I see it, but I'm, I don't feel equipped yet. I'm not learned enough yet. I'm not studied enough yet. I'm not wise enough yet to sit there and boldly say, here's what Revelation's all about, okay? So I felt like at peace. And then the Lord several weeks ago was, okay, by the way, you're going to preach on baptism and the Trinity. So what are you doing, Lord? Okay, like, so this is one, this is a big one because it's one of those we cannot fully wrap our heads around. So I'm telling you at the beginning that I'm going to do my best and may he be honored in it all. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask that you be praying through this as well. But Lord, here is your holy word. Here is what you have revealed to us so that we may know you more. Lord, what I ask is that you help me to be absolutely clear-headed after such 
a long week for this very single moment. Lord, I ask that you be in my speech, which, to be honest, has been muddled off and on throughout the week. It's part of the week. Lord, that it be clear. And Lord, I pray that you give me the peace to pause whenever I need to, to make sure this is clear. And Lord, may I rest solely in you. Because though I am preaching right now to cross life and the faces and the bodies and the lives before me, Lord, I preach before you and you alone. So may you be honored. And Lord, I will not be able to do this one without you. And so, Lord, I know you're with us. The Lord most definitely be with us. Lord, we love you. Amen. Okay, so the context for today is Matthew chapter 3. That's going to be our launch point, And then we're going to go eventually all the way back to Genesis and just start moving to the right throughout the Bible. I will not hit every verse. I will not hit your favorite verse. So you need to know that I there are more verses than I even plan to cover. And then of the ones that I plan to cover, I whittled those down even more to make sure that we can encapsulate this. It's a big topic, but we don't need it to be bigger than what it is, or we're going to lose track of the fullness of what's actually going on in God's Word. So we're going to stop and marvel at the mystery at the end. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So that's kind of our launch point. This is why we're doing what we're doing today. Because typically, like for years, we've decided we're in our fifth year. Correct, Andy? So we've been established as a church for four years. So for four years, really, our main diet has been Chapter, verse, word, chapter, verse, like just moving progressively through passage. We don't usually pause and do something that's topical, kind of like this, except it's good to go back to doctrine and not to assume that we all know it. So we were moving through Matthew. We got to the baptism of Jesus, and it's been a three-week series in that we preach the context of what's going on in, like from 13 to 17, what's going on in this passage and then felt like a good time by Lord's leading to say, okay, what is baptism? What do we need to know to make sure we're all on the same page? And now it's a really great time to also pause and just look at the Trinity so that we understand what's going on um, as best as we humanly can. So the gist of today is, what do we need to know today about the Trinity? Because hopefully at some point in your life, you're going to sit down with your child, your grandchild, or someone, and they're going to be asking you questions, and this will hopefully just affirm, I hope, what you know or help you to think about it in a little bit more. Okay, so what do you need to know about the Trinity? And here it is. Does the word Trinity appear in the Bible? Absolutely not. The word never appears in the Bible. So what we have, though, is kind of the concept of the Trinity. So if you were to do, if you were to go back to your concordance and say, I need to find the Trinity like you're not going to find it by flipping through a concordance looking for the word Trinity. There is no scripture, there's no passage, I'm sorry, chapter and verse that I can point you to. Rather, it's the concept. And all throughout scripture, we see evidence that God exists as three distinct but wholly complete persons who are each fully God and yet collectively fully God. All right, so the concept is there. 
We just had to give a term to the concept. So then what does Trinity actually mean? Because I'm an English teacher, and you got to know the vocabulary word, and you got to know the definition. So Trinity, whenever we say it, it actually means two, two definitions, tri-unity. And so they took tri, and then they took unity, and they slammed it together into Trinity. So a three-part unity. Or, or I like this one, three-in-oneness. Like three-in-oneness is what Trinity means. That one makes a little bit more sense to me than tri-unity. So whenever we say Trinity, we're saying that there's three-in-oneness. We also use the term, you'll hear it quite a bit, triune. And so T-R-I-U-N-E, triune, if he's a triune God, he is a tri-unified, tri-united God. So we'll use Trinity and we'll use triune a whole lot whenever we're talking about God. We cross life, do other churches preach the Trinity or use Trinitarian language? There's another vocabulary word for you, Trinitarian, but... Some yes, some not. But I want you to know what the words mean whenever you hear them. All right, so does it appear in the Bible? No, as a term, as a concept, it's all throughout. What does it mean? Triunity or three-in-oneness. Now, the doctrine of Trinity means this, and I love how Wayne Grudem does this. He says it this way. The Trinity is the doctrine that God... By the way, thank you for being a church that is comfortable and okay with us preaching just doctrine. It's healthy for us. Okay, I've met with pastors who will say, I'd love to preach doctrine, but I can't. My people wouldn't listen to that. That gets kind of dry and boring. I'm like, well, you're preaching it the wrong way. Like, that's on you. Okay, so, so here, the doctrine that God eternally exists as three persons, and by the way, all my notes fully available to you. Just remind me. The doctrine that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, so the question that I have to kind of spark all this is, this is a hard thing to understand. Is it really that important? I think that's a fair question. It's really hard to understand. Is it really that important? And my response is, this baffles the human mind. And I will contend that that means we stand amazed, not cast it aside. So we stand amazed. What's the conclusion of all this going to be? What do we do with all this information? Stand amazed. Like that's going to be what we ultimately come to. But there is something in our logic that says, I don't get it, therefore I either have to like fully grasp it, or I just have to get rid of it. But we grasp this by faith, not through like the full enlightenment logic that we love so incredibly much. If this makes sense to you, that is a gift from God because of the faith that He has given you in it. This makes sense in faith. But the resolution is, stand amazed. In Psalm 50, 21... In Psalm 50, 21, God clarifies. He's talking to the Israelites and He says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And then He clarifies, He says, and I'm not. I want to push into that real quick. Psalm 50, 21, God clarifies, you thought I was one like yourself. No, He is not. He is different. He is, he is quote, other than we are. 
That's incredibly important for this to even remotely make any sort of sense. It is a good thing that he is not like us. Now, he did become like us in the Son. He became like us by taking on the flesh of sinful man. But y'all, that is our God condescending to us, becoming like us so that he might save us and intercede for us. So he's not like us. He became like us so that he could make us like himself. So it's this great rescue mission. And that flesh of Jesus Christ that took on the flesh to become like us so that he could save us, it was pierced for our transgressions. And he was buried and he was resurrected again. He's not like us in any way whatsoever. He's not like us except that he took on our flesh so that he might die for us. I'm talking about the big concept of God. He's resurrected. He's seated on high for all of eternity. We can't even begin to fathom the presence it must be resounding through heaven as all the elders are laying down their crowns and bowing down before him. And it says that there are myriads and myriads and myriads of saints from all nations and tribes and tongues all crying out to him like, I can't wrap my head around that. Like that is a God who is so much more different than you and me. Like let's start there. If you start with ourselves as the center of the logic on this and that God is like me, then it will never make any sense. He must be in our hearts and minds so completely different. Y'all, heaven is worshiping with resounding praise to him who is seated on the throne and to the lamb who was slain. And they sing forever and ever and ever. And it will never be enough praise to capture his magnitude and majesty because God is not a God who is like us. He became like us so that he could save us and bring us to be like him. But you have to start with it. If God walked into this room right now, we would not be comfortable. We are not God and he is not us. He is triune. And this is an unfathomable and therefore uncomfortable truth for the human mind. But the redeemed heart, it's a truth that we know well and we know somehow it's true. That's our starting point, okay? All right, I would then contend that though this baffles the mind, it is of absolutely utmost importance because the Trinitary nature of God is who He is. It's what He is. The fact that we cannot understand it does not disprove it. It, to me, just shows how great our God actually is. So I think it's of utmost importance. Why? Because it's how He revealed Himself to us. He reveals Himself throughout Scripture as a majestic and mysterious Trinitarian God. It would be like if you said, hey, I want to know Ricky, and I want to spend time with Ricky. I'm Ricky, by the way. Okay. But you don't want to know like what I like, what I'm truly like. You just want to be like in my presence, but as you learn stuff about me, like one of my favorite shows is MASH, what I like to eat at night, used to be double stuffed Oreos, now it's Raisin Bran Crunch or um, oatmeal. I like those things a lot, at which point, you know, my wife walks through and she says, how old are you? But it's really enjoyable way to kind of end the night. If you want to know me, if you want to know those things, that like all the details of my, then, then you're going to actually know me. But then what if you know all those things and, and then you're like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't like Oreos or mash or, oh, I'm just going to kind of ignore that part about who he is and, and just choose to believe in this person who likes these things. Like, I mean, that's, that's unfortunately what a lot of Christians do with God whenever they begin to reject the Trinity. Here's something that we know is true about God and 
we don't we don't get it so we don't like that we don't get it so we just kind of ignore it is it important absolutely i hope you see that by the end here the danger y'all for us is that we want a god that we want god to be so much like us that he is actually no longer god that's the danger of the human heart and the trinity demands that we acknowledge he is not one like us at all so are there bible verses that support this here we go Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to start, okay? And, and I limited myself to about 17 verses. Passages, not verses, passages, okay? almost lied in the middle of a sermon, but I fixed it, don't worry. We're good. Okay, Genesis 1, and we're going to move relatively quickly because I want us to get as much of this as we can. And, and there's just a lot that even if we dwell on it, hear me in this, even if we were to dwell on it, I don't think it would illuminate even more, illuminate it even more for us by spending a couple extra moments on a verse. I just think that you need to see it and you need, need to let God work in you. And we stand amazed. Genesis 1, 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. Now go to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness to roll over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over the earth itself and every creature that crawls upon it. In the very first chapter of Genesis and therefore the beginning of the entire Bible, we have a very unique thing. God, singular, is referring in plurality to himself. Now for a while, there were many scholars who said, oh, he's using royal language because he's the majestic God. And so he's referring to we being himself in a majestic royal way. But the truth is that happens nowhere else throughout all of Scripture. That argument no longer stands up. We also now have the full counsel of Scripture where we can see that whenever he says us and our, even in the Old Testament, even in Genesis, that he must be talking and keeping counsel amongst himself. So we're going to see some, I hope, familiar verses where we just kind of see some things play out. But God says, by the way, to no one else in creation, because there's no human there at that point, he says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image after our plural likeness. So who is God speaking to? The counsel of his own self, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and himself. That's the plurality. You also see this, just make a note. I'll read it to you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And in Genesis eleven seven, he says about the tower... Um, that they've constructed, come, let us go down there and confuse our language. From the very beginning, from the very first book, from the very first chapter, there is a plurality of the Godhead that we get so comfortable we probably just didn't actually pay that much attention to it. We're like, oh, that's just how God talks, right? He's God. There's a plurality there. I'm just going to kind of go on. Now I'm going to jump all the way to Psalm 45. In Psalm 45, this is one example from one psalm of the type of language that we see throughout the psalms. Okay? And I'm actually going to use Grudem's exposition of this so that you can see this is not Ricky up here just trying to twist language. Um, so here's what Psalm 45, 6 through 7, and there were actually psalms before this that could have been used, but 
I like this one. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's just one example. Watch what happens. Okay, I'm just going to highlight before we actually kind of exposit it. Um, Your throne, O God. So he's talking to this person. Your throne is forever and ever. And then you go a little bit further and it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Like, there's some interchange of language is what I'm going to say throughout. In other words, it looks like we're talking about this person, then all of a sudden it turns out we're talking about this person, and it turns out that they're very, like, they're because of Trinity, it makes sense. But if you don't get the Trinity, it makes no sense. There's other Psalms where the Lord said to my Lord, and then as you're, you're like, okay, what's the Lord? Like, it's his king. Like, God said to his king until you realize that that doesn't, like, no earthly rationale makes sense. That has to be Jesus. That has to be God. And so, like, this is revealed throughout Scripture. Okay, so I'm going to read it one more time, and I want you to see how Grudem explains it, just so you can understand that there are many, ver- many, um, this is not Ricky trying to force something in, okay? So, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter, forever and ever is key there. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And Grudem puts it this way. Here the psalm passes beyond describing anything that could be true of an earthly king and calls the king God, whose throne will last forever and ever. But then, still speaking to the person called God, the author says that God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So two separate persons are called God. And in Hebrew, they're both Elohim. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews quotes this passage and applies it to Christ. Your throne, O God, Christ is forever and ever. So there's a subtle interchange that's already happening in the Old Testament that now that we have the New Testament, we can look back and understand more fully. Cloud of fog and good? Okay, good. That happens a whole lot through Psalms. You should just watch it. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Just highlighting things that you're going to be like, oh, I've seen that. I've, I, oh, I know that. Good. See? So you don't need me to do it perfectly because you already know it. It's all good. Fantastic. Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. Like that word, us. Who's he talking to? I mean, that's a big question. Like, who is the us there? We see it all the way from Genesis, like, to this moment right here. There is a plurality in the Godhead. Isaiah says, I'll go. I've seen the beauty and the mystery and the majesty of the Lord, and I will go. By the way, footnote, you need to go read the rest of the chapter and see what Isaiah's ministry was really all about. It was to go preach to people who would not listen, to preach repentance to people who wouldn't repent, to call on people to turn to God and they would not turn. And Isaiah says, okay, I'll go. Like, we would at this point, knowing Isaiah's ministry on the front end, if that was me who said, so I'm going to go have a fruitless ministry. You know what? I'm out. I don't like that. And Isaiah goes. Just 
Whenever we say, Lord, here I am, send me, we need to understand that faithfulness does not always mean we get to see the fruit of it. Okay, Isaiah 9, 6. That's another sermon I know, but I have to put it there. Isaiah 9, 6. Oh, such a familiar, wonderful passage. A great interchange happens here. Interchange is my word that, I, that I've used to kind of help understand the languages of these. It's a real word. I'm saying it's a word that I choose to apply to these verses. Isaiah 9, 6, it's about to be Christmas season. We're all going to know this verse. It's going to be on everything, everywhere. We're going to read it at our church because we're good Christians. But Isaiah 9, 6, this great Christmas verse says, For to us, that's us, all right, a child is born. To us a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So a very familiar verse. Walk with me through this, all right? For to us a child is born. Who is this? Jesus, right? No trick there, I promise. Okay, so you're like, uh-huh, maybe. I don't know. Okay, it's Jesus. For unto us a child is born, Jesus. To us a son is given. And then go a little bit further. His name, Jesus' name, Jesus shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, I'm good. Look at the next one. Mighty God. The child, Jesus, shall be called Mighty God. That's significant. That's a revelation to us that there's something bigger in this child being born. This is God again, like revealing to us that He is something much bigger. Look at the next one. The child, Jesus, shall be called Everlasting Father. Like He, he is called Everlasting Father. The Son is the Father. The Father is the Son. The only way for you to reconcile that is the fact that He must be part of the Trinity. That Jesus and God, my kids do it perfectly. Well, that makes sense because Jesus is God and God is Jesus, but they're not the same ones. I'm like, you get it. Okay, perfect. It makes total sense right here. Jesus is the everlasting Father. The Father is, the everlasting Father is Jesus, and yet they're not the same because they're different in the Trinity. They are distinct, and yet they absolutely makes total sense for Jesus to be the everlasting Father in the mystery of the Trinity. I just want you to see, like, there's things like that all throughout. We're going to do another one here in a second. Like, but look at what I call the interchange within the mysterious union of the Trinity. Because they are one, then they can refer to one another and be interchanged in some pretty powerful and mysterious way. The Son is God, the Father is God, but they are independently and singularly God. And He, together, collectively and individually, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Total sense, I know. Okay, go to Isaiah 63, verse 10. I just wanted you to see this one. Like this one kind of sneaks in there because God's very subtle sometimes. So you read Isaiah 63, and I just wanted you to catch this. Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit's capitalized. Could they have messed up while they were writing it and they meant to put a lowercase, except that no man pinned any prophecy except as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, is what it tells us in the New Testament. And so I think it's just very clear there's a Holy Spirit even in the Old Testament. I just want you to know he's not like a new invention. God just reveals himself in that way more clearly in the New Testament. Okay, so they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He, God, turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Just wanted you to see, Holy Testament, the Old Testament, it's capitalized, it's distinct. Okay, now we're going to go to Matthew. Now we're going to be in the New Testament. 
Simple things that I hope will help us as we're having coffee with people and trying to lead them through a mystery that we have once tread and are comfortable with saying we don't get it. We worship it. It's great. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's Jesus. Now look at what it means, which means, according to Scripture, God with us. Again, we're comfortable with this truth, right? Maybe because we've seen these passages before, and we're like, we're like yeah, okay, great. But, but also tug back, I'm going to probably need to be equipping someone someday, but I just want you to see that Jesus' Jesus's birth, His name is Emmanuel, it means God with us. The Bible itself has no problem with ascribing deity to Jesus the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and for them to be in this mysterious tree. It's just presumed that we will accept that by faith. There's no defense of it. It's just simply given to us and revealed because it's truth. Okay, we're going to come back to that at the very end. Look at Matthew chapter 3, 16 through 17. It's the verse we started with, but I'm just moving to the right. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the scene in the Gospels, plural, that you should note for all of your considerations of the Trinity. If there's ever been any doubt of there being a Trinity or God manifesting Himself in many ways, and this is one of those passages that you want to look at, especially as people are trying to describe the Trinity, then you always want to come back to this one. In this one scene, we have the fullness of the Trinity on full display. The Son is coming up out of the water. The Holy Spirit is coming down to descend upon Him. And God the Father is in heaven speaking. All three active in this one moment all of the Trinity on full display for all to see, for all the saints from all time to be able to look back and say, there's our God in three distinct persons in this one moment. Like I just think it's a very powerful scene that we want to hold on to. Matthew 28, 19. In the Great Commission... We looked at this with baptism, but don't miss what God, or, well, yeah, I was going to say God, and then I was going to say no Jesus, but, okay. <laughs> Look at what he does here, okay, let's do that. Look at what God reveals to us in Jesus saying this. Look, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We love that one, baptizing them. We love that one in the name of, what is it? The Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, English nerding out here, okay, you have to see this. There's a thing in grammar called parallelism. In other words, give you a bad example, I like reading, working out, and to fish. Right? And you're sitting there going, he messed up. What should I say? Instead of to fish, I would say fishing, right? They have to all sound the same. I like reading, working out, and fishing. They all, see how they all sound the same? Look at that, and the reason you do that is you want every item in that list to have the same weight or recognition. I just think it's very good right here that Jesus uses great grammar to give equal weight that we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That grammatical structure is intentional. It helps us to realize that there's equal weight to each one of them. 
He names all three persons of the Trinity. As we are baptized, y'all, I think we missed this. As we are baptized, it is done into the fullness of God's mysterious majesty. Like the Trinity is what we are baptized into. Like that's amazing. John chapter 1. Gotta keep going. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. A passage that we can absolutely go to for the Trinity. We're going to do 1 through 3, and then we're going to do 14. I don't think I'm going to be able to hit all 17 of my verses and cover everything else. I can, but I think that the children's workers, one of whom I have to go home with, is making me think, perhaps not. And this is the wisdom that comes from the Lord, right? Okay, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to read it and then break it down. We're we're just going to break this one down as we go. In the beginning was the Word. Okay? Y'all, this is Jesus. We've preached through John. We've clarified. If you want to hear that passage more in depth, then then go find the podcast or I'll send you sermon notes. Like we we try to post them all out there. Say, in the beginning was the Word. This is Jesus. And the Word was, look at this, was with God. The key word there for me is with. So they are separate. Jesus was with God the Father. And the word was God. So they're unified. So they were separate. They're unified. Jesus is also with God the Father. He was God and was in the beginning with God as separate, which now helps us to understand Genesis 1 because Jesus was in the beginning with God And that explains our us and our in Genesis. Why? Because Scripture is always the best commentary for Scripture. The more Scripture you read, you realize that it reflects back and it gives understanding to other verses all throughout Scripture. That's the beauty of His Holy Spirit within us. But you you need to get this. He was there at creation. And for some reason, I actually just said, you know what, that's enough for us to go right there because then Jesus takes on flesh and we know that one. So I just kind of had a note for myself. But that's a, if you do 1 through 3 and verse 14, you can see some more of the Trinity, Trinity revealed to us. Look at John 1, 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Great interchange here that if you read it slowly, we can marvel. No one has ever seen God being God the Father. Everybody good? Okay. Semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Did you see what just happened there? Who sits at the Father's side? Jesus. So watch what happens. No one has ever seen God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. So whenever it says the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, Jesus has made Him known. But God the Father is referred to as God, and Jesus is referred to God in this one verse. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Okay. All right, so no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He's made Him known. So John says, no one's ever seen God except God, and God has made Him known to us, and God took on flesh and became one like us. Love it. I don't get it. John chapter 10, verse 30. For my references, I put 30 through 33 because we're going to cover it, but really the big verse is 30. So John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33 is the full context. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's amazing. That's weird. 
Okay. All right, so it's one thing for Chas and I. Well, I'm looking back here at Maddie and Zach. They got married. They are one, right? You talk to Maddie. She represents um, she and Zach. You talk to Zach. He represents Zach and Maddie. Like, that's, that's what we would say. The two have become one. That's not what this means. This doesn't just mean, hey, we agree on everything and we become like one. It literally means we are what we're the same. I am the Father. The Father is in me. That's what that verse means. And just so you know that I'm not making it up, you need to look at verse 31 and then 33. Whenever Jesus says, I and the Father are one, look what happens. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And verse 33 tells us why. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good word that you are being stoned, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. In their language, the way that he said it, it was very clear that Jesus elevated himself to the status of God. Do you know why they wanted to stone and kill him. All the prophecy is that it was, to, it was already foretold that he would be crushed for our iniquities, die for our sin, we would be healed by it. Absolutely. But their problem with him is that he would dare to make himself God. They wanted to kill him because they could not accept the glorious mystery of the Trinity. That's what it comes down to. He says, I and the Father am one. They thought he was committing blasphemy when really he was just revealing truth. They crucified him because they thought he was a blasphemer. How dare he say that he is God? And do you know what Scripture reveals? He is God. Good? Okay, John chapter 14. This is a, gr this is a great verse. They're all great verses. If you need like a commentary, like what do you say about it? I'm just write great verse. Okay. John 14, 16 through 18. This is another one. There's a, there's a lot of interchange going on here again. Okay. I'm calculating um, time and, and passages and what we can actually truly accomplish for our good. So this is a great interchange here. In John 14, 16 through 18, it says, And I will ask the Father, Jesus, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. You'll notice helper is capitalized, so it's a distinct proper noun. To be with you forever. Okay, You know Him, in verse 17, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Okay, so here we go. A lot of interchange going on. When Jesus says that he will ask God the Father for a, quote, another helper, the language means one like myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God the Father to send one just like me is what the language is there, okay? But then watch what develops. I will ask him for another one who is just like me. The one to whom Jesus refers is the Holy Spirit, right? He's the, the Holy Spirit is the helper. We're good with that. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are one, just like one another. And in John 10, we heard Jesus profess that he, that he himself will be, that, that the, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit will be one, that Jesus professes that he will be like the Father. So now here's a triad of God. So let me back up because I muddled through that. In John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus and God, the Father, right here, okay? And then in these verses, he brings in the Holy Spirit who is just like Jesus. And so if, if the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus and Jesus is just like the Father, then the Father and the Spirit must be one and the same. So this triad begins to develop more clearly here. 
And then if Jesus and God the Father are used interchangeably in all these other passages, watch what happens here, because this is cool. In verse 17, Jesus says, you know him, which is the other helper, the Holy Spirit. You know the helper that's coming. You know him. Why? For he, the Holy Spirit, dwells with you. Like you're going to know him when he comes because he dwells with you presently in this moment. So as Jesus Christ. All right, I'm going to do it all again here in a second. And then he says, I, Jesus, will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, will come to you. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he says, but I, Jesus, I will come to you. Well, how's he going to come? In the presence of the Holy Spirit. So to have Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to have Jesus. To have Jesus is to have God. To have God is to have the Holy Spirit. Like all of the fullness of the mystery of the Trinity dwells within us and about us and we're saved by it and we're kept for it. And we don't have to get it. We just have to marvel at it. That all throughout Scripture, He continuously reveals Himself to us as a triune God. So let me walk through it all again. Verse 17, you know him, the Holy Spirit, for he, the Holy Spirit, dwells with you as me, Jesus Christ, and, and will be in you. So he dwells with you, but he will be in you. And I, Jesus, will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, will come to you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. If the Trinity doesn't exist, then that makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, I'm just going to give you some to write down, okay? So Romans chapter 14, 17 through 18. And what you're going to see here in Romans 14, 17 through 18, you're going to read or hear the articulation of the Trinity. And what I mean is this. You're going to hear the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God the Father mentioned as distinct yet in unity. Sounds like this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, and you have God, and they all work in unity, though distinctly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 6. That's another one. Just kind of ride these down. You hear Trinitarian language yet again. It sounds like this. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Everybody gets into the, the gifts of the Spirit, and they tend to keep focusing on the well, how I said it, the gifts of the Spirit. How's the Holy Spirit? It's the work of the Trinity with, within and for us and for His church. All the giftings, all the service, all the activity are for the Holy Spirit, for Jesus, and for God, by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus, and by God, because they're all the same. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 14. Again, it just mentions all three of them. As Paul is writing, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, which would be the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three are mentioned. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Sorry, I'm going a little bit quicker. I just really want to be mindful. When the bum that we sit on, when the bum is numb, the brain is dumb. Okay? Just trying to be mindful of that. So, so Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It says, for in actually you turn to this one. This is a good one, and then I'll just I'll refer to the other one. Um, the other one just has Trinitarian reference, but this one. Um, is just to really cement that in case we miss it, that Jesus is God and the full deity that we need for our salvation. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 says, For in him, Jesus, right? For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, that is the fullness of God, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, Jesus. Now watch this. Who is the head of all rule and authority. That which was normally ascribed to God the Father actually belongs to Jesus. How is that possible except that he must be God and one just like God the Father? Okay. There's a, there's, you can do this all throughout Scripture. You just slow down. Interchange that look at the whenever it says he and him. You could also look at First Peter chapter one verses one through two. You have Trinitarian reference to all three persons of the Trinity. And then I was making room for this part here at the end. Now these these two parts. I'm going to get as far as I can and everything else. Shoot me a text. I'll send you the notes and you can fill in all the gaps if you want. Or you might leave here going that was enough. All right, we're done. Okay. Listen to what Tozer says. It's a long quote. You won't be able to write it down. This was in a book called Knowledge of the Holy. It's the one book that I've told you, like, it really changed, like, my Christian life. It really reset my perspective. It's a very short book, but it's called Knowledge of the Holy. And he he dives into the mystery of all these things. And here's what he says, this, in Knowledge of the Holy. A popular belief among Christians divides the work of God between three persons, giving a specific part to each, as, for instance... Creation to the Father, redemption to the Son, and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. I was taught that, by the way. Okay, This is partly true, but not wholly true. For God cannot so divide Himself that one person works while the other is inactive. In Scriptures, the three persons are shown to act in harmonious unity in all the mighty works that are wrought throughout the universe. Watch this. In the Holy Scriptures, the work of creation is attributed to the Father in Genesis 1, to the Son in Colossians 1, and to the Holy Spirit in Job and Psalms. The incarnation is shown to have been accomplished by the three persons in full accord in Luke 1. Though only the Son became flesh to dwell amongst us. At Christ's baptism, the Son came up out of the water, the Spirit descended upon Him, and the Father's voice spoke from heaven in Matthew chapter 3. Probably the most beautiful description of the work of atonement is found in Hebrews 9.14, where it stated that Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God. And there we behold the three persons operating together. The resurrection of Christ is likewise attributed variously to the Father in Acts, to the Son, in John, and to the Holy Spirit, in Romans. By the way, there's verses for each one of those. The salvation of the individual man is shown by the Apostle Peter to be the work of all three persons of the Godhead in 1 Peter 1-2. And the indwelling of the Christian man's soul is to be by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in John 14, verses 15-23. through That's what brings the mystery of the Trinity back together is we tend to attribute one Role or one act to each one of them whenever we read all of Scripture and bring it back together, and they're all three functioning, though distinctly, in harmony and unified throughout it all. Are there examples that might help us to understand the Trinity? Absolutely. I'm going to go very quickly here because I want Scripture to be the primary time that we spend our, our, our time in. Okay, I call this one um, the ice water. Now, there's different actual terms for these, like being modality and... Okay, the ice water illustration, you have no doubt heard this one, I bet you. 
if I were to have a glass of water and a good pastor would have had it sitting up here the whole time, that as he's talking about the Trinity, he's like, that's the Trinity right there. Because it's the most common one that we have. You have a glass of ice water. You have ice in there. You have liquid water. And then people would say, this is a good depiction of the Trinity because all of them are water. But you have the liquid water. You have the solid water. And then you have the vapor water. This is a good illustration to which I would say it's not. Is it good in essence? Yes. All water, three different phases, three different states. It, however, does not actually capture the fullness because there is a constant shift in the phases if you actually think about it. The solid is actually becoming less and then the liquid would become less so that a glass of water that sits here for a whole week is going to have less water and the vapor is actually more in that process. So the shifting of phases is where it fails in trying to understand the Trinity because there is no shift there is no phasing in and out whenever it comes to the Trinity. There is distinction. There is absoluteness. When Jesus is active, God the Father has not somehow been lessened. When the Holy Spirit is active, Jesus the Father has not shifted in power or majesty as God. They are all fully there. Okay, in fact, this is why I want to make sure and hit this one. We've all seen the triangle. Like I know we have. Like This is the only way that we really get the Trinity is by drawing that triangle. But I want you to see that whenever Jesus is active, it's not as though these two have become less active. They haven't become less. In fact, they become even more on the scene. So here's what happens. If you were to draw the Trinity out, and you put God the Father, and you put Jesus the Son, and you put the Holy Spirit, and I understand that like, just what's going to happen is I'm probably going to refer to them in the wrong way. Okay, So just grace there at the bottom of the triangle. Who did I put over here? Jesus? Okay. Whenever Jesus is doing His ministry, His ministry points to God the Father and it points to the Holy Spirit. They are magnified by Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is doing ministry, He's pointing to God the Father and He's pointing to Jesus. They are magnified. They are made much more of, not less of. When God the Father is doing His ministry, He's pointing to His Son and He's pointing to His Holy Spirit. They don't become less than when one is active. They become more because they become the focus and the attention of that Trinitarian person. So watch Jesus, and He tells you about the Holy Spirit, and He magnifies and glorifies the Father. You look at the ministry of the Father, and He's telling you about His Spirit that He's placed within us, and about His Son who's going to come, and about His Son who's glorified and elevated um, to full majesty. And you look at what who's elevated out there. The Holy Spirit, He's always telling you, moving His saints throughout all time to magnify the Father or to magnify the Son. That's why we sing today, because the Holy Spirit magnifies the Father and the Son. He doesn't glorify Himself, because they glorify Him. Okay, so if anything, there is no, the reason that fails is because there's a phasing out of, of different phases of matter whenever really what happens is that there should be magnifying of the other one. So it's, it's okay. Um, the other one, the family illustration, you know, like I'm Ricky, the father, but whenever my parents show up, I'm the son. And then whenever I'm with my, I'm sorry, I'm married, so I'm a husband and then I'm a father. And so isn't that just God? Can God just like, that helps me understand it. I'm the father, I'm the son, I'm the Holy Spirit. Can't because I'm still only one person. The Trinity is not a matter of just shifting titles. It's a matter of three distinct persons who are still somehow unified as one. Another one, the bad one for me, is the actor illustration, which is called modality. Um, you know, like you have this one actor who's doing this one act play. And so I go into this room and I come out and, and I'm, I'm dressed up as this person for this scene. And then I go back and I come out dressed as this person for this scene. And I go back and I come back. And so isn't it really, if you read scripture, they would say in the Old Testament, it's really about God the Father. 
So he comes out and he's God the Father. Well, then you get to the New Testament and, and he kind of steps up and he's Jesus. God the Father, not as, you know, like he comes out, he reveals himself as Jesus now. And then he goes backstage and now he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that work? Has some logic like in revealing somewhat unless you read all of Scripture and you realize, no, they're still all somehow active. But that's a common illustration that people will use. And it doesn't work. It misunderstands the mystery of the triune God. It's in this illustration. Oh, I've already done all that. God does not simply present himself as three different persons at different times. He is, get this, singularly three distinct persons at all times and all are fully functioning together in their absolutely separate roles. And yet there's unity in it. Okay, my favorite one was this. It's what I learned. It's what worked for me. There, I'm going to switch hands now because I can't point with my left evidently. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I like this one because they're all together, yet you can still see the distinction. And you can also see that if we... Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Okay, so if we were to remove one, then you can see visually that there's something missing in it. And like there's, there's an aspect of it that's missing, right? So this one has always worked for me until my son said, well, we were taught it this way, not this, but this. Now I can go back to this. And they're like, you know, like there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And but they're, they're one. They're so completely in line. So much so that if you, if you take the Holy Spirit out, like right here, and we take God the Father out and we see only Jesus, there's still that one fullness. So you, you get the idea, that projection, that in each one of those, this is my favorite one for the Trinity, three in one, so completely aligned that each one has its own ministry, but they are also completely unified. So that's the illustration that I tend to like. And you're going to go home and be like, oh, he missed this. And I did. Okay, it's a mystery. We get over it. Okay, so here we go. I can't wrap my head around all of this. What do I do? Please hear me on this. And then we're going to, we're going to pull it all together. I can't wrap my head around it. What do I do? Please hear me. That's okay. It's okay. This is such a great mystery, and no illustration in this world will ever explain the Trinity. It is unworldly. It is uncreated. Tozer puts it this way, the fact that it cannot be satisfactorily explained instead of being against it is in favor. Such a truth had to be revealed. No one could have imagined it. For your comfort right there. I mean, can you really explain creation? Can you really explain the parting of the Red Sea or the virgin birth? Can you explain Jesus' miracles or His glorious resurrection? Can you tell me what it's going to be like whenever Christ returns? Can you really actually tell me that you understand what heaven will be like? We can't, and we know on all those that it's okay. And I'm going to say that we cannot fully wrap our minds around the Trinity, but God has still promised us that it's true. This is His grace. And that's where we rest. So what do we do with all of this then? Stand amazed. That's my conclusion. Like, stand amazed that this is a God who is not like us. He's revealed it. I hope you've seen some scripture. So you know it's not just something we're willy-nilly making up. Exodus 15.11 says, 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And my response to that cross life is, there is no one like our God. He is like no other. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Let's pray. Lord, any confusion that I may have created in my flesh, in my words, Lord, by Your grace, make it clear. Lord, if I have spoken in error, Lord, show me quickly and reprove me so that I don't continue that. But Lord, what I pray is that we are equipped by this doctrine, not confused by it. Lord, and that really we rest in the mystery of Your grace. We don't have to understand the Trinity to be saved. We only need You, Jesus. As I think about the Trinity, I think of one glorious, peaceful thing, God, that You've revealed to us in Romans 8. That when we don't know how to pray, Your Spirit is within us, interceding for us. And later in that chapter, it says that Jesus is on the throne, interceding for us to the Father. And so, God, thank You that in the Trinity, You are always keeping us so close. Lord, we love You. Help us to stand amazed yet again at who you are. Amen.